Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Martin Kaldorf, a renowned biostatistician and epidemiologist widely recognized for co-authoring the Great Barrington Declaration, which has almost 1 million signatures at the time of this recording. He's also a founding fellow at the Academy for Science and Freedom. Martin has devoted his career to advancing the development of methods for disease outbreak detection, monitoring, as well as drug and vaccine safety surveillance. At Harvard Medical School for 19 years, from 2003 to 2023, Martin contributed significantly in roles as professor in the Department of Medicine and the Department of Population Medicine. Martin has a PhD in operations research and industrial engineering from Cornell University and a bachelor in science and mathematical statistics from Umea University. With a focus on the COVID-19 pandemic, vaccines, public health, and epidemiology, his mission is educating and advocating for the free exchange of scientific ideas and the pursuit of truth. I've asked Martin to join us here today to share his story and help us better navigate towards a brighter future for us all. So Martin, thank you so much for your time today, for joining us. How you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me, Daryl. Yeah, it's an honor and a pleasure. We had a great kind of pre-call yesterday. I was very jazzed about the discussion. I almost felt like we should hit record on that. But before we get into a lot of the stuff that, you know, about the pandemic and what's going on, I always like to ask, how did you even get into this field? Is this something, is this like something your parents were into? Is were you Are you following a mom and dad's footsteps? How did you even get started down this path? I always liked the mathematics, and uh, so I studied statistics as the very practical aspects of uh, mathematics. And then once I was approached by two uh, pediatricians who were interested in the, in leuke childhood leukemia and the geographical distribution of childhood leukemia, so I started then working on epidemiology and disease surveillance. That's what I've been busy with for the last few decades, both disease outbreak detection and drug and vaccine safety surveillance. So is that... It's very succinct. So you just, you love math as a kid. You're at the table counting spoons and then, and then you grew up and then you were taking inventory on groceries. And I don't know, you just had a knack for math and enjoyed it. And did you do math competitions in school? Like how did, how did that develop? No, I don't think I did any math competitions, but I guess I have a generally curious mind. Hmm. And I think being a scientist is a real privilege because you get to explore the world like a child does. Mm. that's very fun and fascinating to do. I love that. Can you speak to that a little bit more when you say exploring? Because I think a lot of people, they have almost a serious view of science and that it's like a, I, I don't know, I might be speaking for other people. I don't know, but can you speak to that? Like, what is the scientific method and how do we explore? A lot of people call it reductionist. I think everybody has been a scientist once in their life because all children are scientists because they explore the world, try to understand it. They do experiments in a very natural and intuitive manner. Mm. I think that some people might view science as a very serious and boring thing. But to me, this aspect of there is something there we don't know. Right. So in a sense, the foundation of science is ignorance because it's something we don't know. And then we want to try to understand it and explore it from different angles. And to me, that's quite fascinating and a wonderful uh, experience and thing to do. And sometimes you try to figure out something and you go in the wrong direction. And sometimes you go in the right direction. That, but that's that's how children do also. And that's also part of life. So that's part of the enjoyment to uh, that discovery when you discover something new. I love that. you. I, I like to talk about how Karl Popper, one of the science educators, one of the most prolific ones, had a formula for the scientific method that I like and I keep in my mind. It was T, uh, P1 plus TS plus EE equals P2. So you have problem one plus temporary solution, plus you eliminate the errors through observation, experimentation, data collection. And then you arrive at problem two, or you're not at problem two, but you've learned more about your temporary solution and why it doesn't work, and you're back at the beginning. Is it a conclusive thing? Is the science ever, was the case ever closed, is the question to say? A lot of people feel that when, what is it, I put this, uh, scientists have discovered that people will believe anything when you tell them scientists have discovered it. <laughs> no, there is a truth out there uh, that we are looking for and searching, and there are things that are settled. We know that about gravity, for example, if 
And if you fly a plane, at some point it will come down to the ground because of gravity. Yeah. And yeah. hopefully in, in a nice, smooth landing. We know about uh, the round, the world is round rather than flat. And we know that if you have if you have an infection, then the immune system develops so that you are protected next time you're exposed to the same uh, infection. So those are fundamental truths that we know about. Uh, but then, of course, there's constantly new questions arising. For example, with COVID, there were many things we didn't know about COVID as it, as it came about. And then we tried to figure things out. And that's not a straight path because you usually have to have multiple studies of to see the same problem from different angles. Can you maybe talk, because there was, during the pandemic, there's a lot of talk about herd immunity and no one is safe unless everyone's vaccinated. Can you, is that, is there truth to that? Can you mass vaccinate? That's the wrong question, but can you speak to how does herd immunity work, essentially? Well, herd immunity is also a, a well-established thing that we have known about for a long time. And the thing is that if everybody is susceptible, that is, nobody has immunity, then the disease can spread quite easily because everybody getting infected has a lot of other people that they can affect, infect. But at some point, when more and more people have had the infection and then they are immune, that means that the virus cannot spread as easily. Right. And then you get into an equi equilibrium point where the number of newly infected people are the same as the number of people who is losing the infection, either because uh, for some viruses, the immunity that doesn't last forever, so at some point you lose it and then you can be infected again, uh, or you have new people who are born. The babies are born and they are not immune, so they have to then get uh, the infection. For example, for measles, if enough people are immune, then measles cannot circulate. But there's a, a threshold that if you have fewer people, fewer percentage than that, that are immune, then the virus can uh, circulate until more people get infected and then it stops. So then it comes in waves that comes and goes. So for COVID, what happens is we don't have lifelong immunity against getting reinfected. But the thing is, when you get infected the second time, you already have some immunity that protects you against serious a disease like hospitalizations and deaths. Mm. So that's something that we learned. Now, let's talk the Great Great Barrington Declaration. What was, you probably talked about this a lot, but can you speak to why was it written? What is it for people that don't know what it is? And how, what was the response to it? So it was written in opposition to the strategy that was implemented by United States, like Anthony Fauci and others, as well as people in England and Europe and other countries, uh, where, so by, where we closed the schools and locked down society, people couldn't uh, go to a restaurant, they couldn't uh, go to church, they couldn't even be outside many, uh, even, and they couldn't even go to the beach or so on. That's... So that policy went very much against the basic fundamental principles of public health. So, what, so it was how, a new invention. How, how so? How does it go against basic fundamental principles of public health? So one principle of public health is you can't not only focus on one disease like COVID. Mm. Public health is about mm. all diseases. So when you lock down society, then... And that's what we saw. So people didn't go and get health services. Right. They didn't get their cancer screening or cancer treatment, or they stayed at home when they had chest pain and they should have gone to the hospital. So people died from cardiovascular disease at home. So we know that, and of course, their mental health has deteriorated a lot during the pandemic. So you can't only look at COVID and ignore all these other things. And those, like now, some things like cardiovascular disease those consequences can come pretty soon, but for yep. cancer, it takes time. Nobody, actually cancer diagnosis went down during the pandemic. That's not because there was less cancer, it wasn't diagnosed and therefore it wasn't treated. It's not that people sort of suddenly die of cancer because of lockdowns, but 
somebody who might have lived another 15, 20 years might now die from, uh, let's say, cervical cancer in three to five years from now. The public health, the collateral public health damage from the lockdowns and the pandemic countermeasures is something that we now have to live with for decades to come. Right. Of course, education for children, I think uh, children needs to go to school and they need education because we know that going to school has long-term benefits for their whole life. Yeah, I read it. Things are, everything's down. Reading's down, reading comprehension's down, social skill development's been been set back. It was a definitely, it'll definitely go down in history. That's for sure. So, so at, this, at the same time, we weren't doing proper jobs protecting older people and from the very beginning of the pandemic, from the data in Wuhan, China, we knew that while anybody can get infected, there is more than a thousandfold difference in risk of mortality. And it's mortality that's important to keep down. So yeah. we didn't so we should have done a better job protecting older people in the 70s and 80s and so on, who were at higher risk and they were not properly protected. Right. And there were a lot of things we could have done, for example, reducing staff turnover in the nursing homes, helping the older people. Effective strategy? Was masking an effective strategy? No. How can we be sure? So the gold standard in biomedical research are the randomized controlled trials, where you randomize people to one treatment or another treatment, or one treatment and placebo. And there were two, there has been uh, randomized trials on mass for like influenza, showed very little, uh, uh, zero to very minuscule efficacy. But of course, you need to know it for COVID also. So there's been two studies. One was in Denmark, where they randomized people to wear a surgical mask or not. And there was no statistically significant reduction in infection among those who were wearing the mask which means that there was either zero efficacy or uh, a small efficacy. Mm. There was also a study from Bangladesh, which was a nice study because instead of randomized individuals, they randomized villages. So therefore they can see what is the effect of wearing the mask, not only the, the person who wear it, but also those right. people who may or may not get infected from that person. And the Bangladesh study showed the reduction in, in uh, infection between zero and 18%. So 18% is very little. So there's basically either no or very little efficacy of masks. And what happened is actually because of this mask, this focus on masks, I think some people died because of it because people were told that wear a mask and you'll, you'll protect yourself. So you had all the people who would go out mm-hmm. and about in a crowded restaurant That's or other places Right. They were wearing a mask, thinking they would protect them, but it didn't. Yeah. So they should not, they got, they had a sort of a false sense of security. And that's very dangerous in public health to give people a false sense of security. Yeah. So I, I think yeah. it was very damaging, uh, this uh, focus and messaging about masks. And I think there's another component to it as well. And maybe it would have happened regardless. But I think there's a ton of civilians, I'm a civilian, I'm not in the military, but there's a ton of people walking around, everyday people that have PTSD now. If I'm correct here, PTSD is when you are, uh, find yourself in, emergen- in, in an emergency situation and you do- adopt new behaviors for survival in this scenario. And then the PTSD is when the emergency is over, but the behaviors remain. And in my neighborhood, there's a gentleman, he's cycling. Every night we do our family walk and it's, it's 2024. And he's always riding his bicycle. He never stops to talk to anyone. He's always on his own. He's outside, fresh air, sunshine. I'm in the Philippines. It's sunny here all day, every That's day. Good. And he's always wearing his mask. Always. And I'm just, I see old ladies in our neighborhood come out, they're gardening in the yard. There's no one around them and they're wearing masks. And I feel like that's PTSD. They're, they're, they've adopted a wartime behavior and the war is over, but they still see the world as a hostile place or they, they still feel they need to protect themselves. They need that safety blanket. And I, I think that it goes back to what you're saying how, one, false sense of protection is dangerous, but also that the methods didn't match. It didn't help. We, In some ways, the, the cure was worse than the disease. What happened to you trying to come forward with this knowledge? Were people like, oh, thanks. We appreciate your input, Martin. We're going to consider this. 
and we're going to debate this with other scientists. And we're like, what? Not so much. There was, uh, there were almost, it's been almost a million people signing it, including like tens of thousands of scientists, uh, medical professionals. This was something that a lot of people have thought about, and there's nothing new in these great plan declarations. So we were asking what is basic principles of public health. But the powers that be didn't like it. The thing was that they had tried to ignore anybody who said something against the lockdowns. Mm. And if it's only one person, you can dismiss it. But since there were three of us, uh, we're all infectious disease technologists, and we all came from reasonably respected universities, Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford, they couldn't ignore it. So then they started a takedown of it at the behest of the NIH director, Francis Collins, who, with misrepresenting it, slandering us, making false accusations, what should have happened should have we should have a debate about it right but that that didn't materialize but in discussions with friends we always talked about if you were in medical school the pandemic would have been your super bowl like this this is your opportunity like you came up with the magic formula or the magic protocol that saved lives and defeated the virus and there was i think there's over 300 medical schools in the united states and there was just one message, sit at home, wait to die or get vaccinated. Like that was, it was just like nothing. People were trying to propose early treatment protocols, but it was just, it got nowhere. There was almost more effort, it felt like, to make life incredibly miserable for people trying to do anything other than the the, the main narrative, which was incredibly profitable for a small group of people um, versus actually focus on real health. There was no talk. This has been said before. There's no talk on getting adequate sunlight, vitamin D, exercise, maintaining social connections, as that's an important part of health as well. There's none of that. I feel like if you went through factors affecting all cause mortality and you just inverted all the things that improve outcomes, like that's exactly what the, I'm not asking you to say that's true or false, but it just feels like that. Like the, and I think I heard this recently about the protests in Germany right now that. People feel like the people in charge just they feel hated by these people versus genuinely being being a reciprocal relationship. So you you ended up. Can you talk about about what you've gone through with the the legal cases as a result of this? I was censored by uh, Twitter, by LinkedIn, uh, which is owned by Microsoft, by YouTube, which is owned by Google, um, by Facebook. And uh, we now know that that uh, censoring uh, the social media companies did it at the behest of the of the government. So whenever we said something that contradicted or some other role advice, then that was deemed to be censored, even though even when it was true. And that's not how you have a scientific debate, and that's not how you deal with a crisis situation. And I think that. The founding fathers in the U.S., when they wrote the Constitution, they were just coming out of a crisis situation because they had the War of Independence. So they understood that it is especially when you have a crisis situation, that's especially important to have freedom of speech. Mm. But that went down the drain. So I'm a co-plaintiff now in a lawsuit that the Attorney General of Missouri and Louisiana has filed against the federal government. It's called Missouri versus Biden, whether federal government should be allowed to coerce social media company to censor things on their behalf. And we won in the district court and we won in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, but now it's in front of the Supreme Court sometime in the spring. So we don't know what's going to happen there. I hope you guys prevail. I think that's really, really important. So freedom of speech. I don't know if my questions are jumping around at all, but I feel like I want to squeeze your decades of experience into a into an hour like get all the toothpaste out of the tube no so we've talked a bit about some different things i want to get back to you come out with this how does harvard respond because there's been some controversy around harvard president i believe was asked to step down was that a supportive environment for you once you came forward with this being the fact that you are the de facto expert in this, in this top per se, where they're like, okay, Martin, you've been here 19 years. We trust you. Thanks. We got your back on this. Was this, was there a safe uh, no, It was not a very supportive environment, uh, but 
the president who stepped down, Claudine Gay, she was only president for half a year. So yeah. she was not pres president during the pandemic, actually. So we can't blame her for that one. Sure. But no, there wasn't a very supportive environment. And why do you feel that shouldn't it be? Because uh, you've obviously you've gone to become a, a co-founding fellow of the Academy. Uh, was it the Academy of Science? Hold on, I got it here. The Academy Science of Science Freedom. Science Freedom. Yeah. And what what is the vision for that? Without trying to put down others, what is this academy representing? that you felt you weren't able to get satisfact at a satisfactory level elsewhere? Like, why do that? Why not just do it at Harvard? So we shouldn't censor science. We should have open scientific debates between scientists. If a scientist doesn't want to debate or refuse to debate a fellow scientist, then I don't think we should trust that scientist. So it is important to have, and there were a few, but not very many. And so I think, for example, the NIH director, instead of initiating a devastating takedown on the Great Plains Declaration, he should have welcomed us to have discussions and open discourse about various pros and cons of different approaches. That would have been the right way to do things. But somehow everybody closed their minds and you were not allowed to, to question the official narrative here. Yeah. When people make money, they, they say when... Make hay when the sun shines. I guess that maybe that was more the attitude. Forget saving lives. Sorry, it's personal. So I'm a native of I'm, I'm a native of Sweden, so I I also follow the debate in Sweden. And Sweden was actually the only country, only Western country that didn't lock down. They kept the schools open in the spring of 2020, and then on for all the kids ages one to 15. And they didn't lock down and close down society as other places. They didn't wear masks. Yep. and so on and we now know what the, we now know what the result is because the ultimate measure for success is excess mortality that is how much more mortality is there during the pandemic from like 2020 to 2022 or 2023 and among western countries in europe and north america sweden has the lowest excess mortality yeah they won they clearly won they clearly follow the actual science and one. Now, to follow up with that, when we say, oh, the science should be debated, I have a couple of follow-up questions. One, who should be debating the science? And how do we know we can trust those people? And I'll ask that one first. Scientists should obviously debate science, but I think on an important issue like this, I think it's also natural for the public to participate in that debate, both to ask questions and to uh, propose ideas. And there were actually some very good uh, members of the public who does not have a PhD in epidemiology or, or something similar, who actually did some very good and interesting work uh, on the pandemic. Yeah, I, I think we need more citizen, um, was it amateur hob scientist hobbies, hobby, hobbyist scientist and citizen journalists? I think we need more of all that. I would consider myself in that group. I read a lot of studies and that actually leads nicely in the next. Talking about this, how do we even trust that studies are done? I feel like it's really easy to lie with statistics in studies. And a great example recently that came up actually with my team, we were talking about this sort of stuff. And I just used the tools I had at my disposal. And I literally just picked an HPV. It was like a double blind study for the HPV vaccine. And we took a look at it. And the end result was the HPV vaccine is known to be effective. And I pointed out some questions that I had about it, and I don't have the one on, on hand, but for example, and this is HPV, this is not COVID related. This vaccine's been around forever. In it, I said it's financed by Merrick and another pharmaceutical company. That seems like a conflict of interest. The authors of it had patents for an HPV detection test. They only checked for adverse events for 14 days after each injection. There were multiple injections done throughout the period. And when I looked through the, the participants that got excluded, some of the participants were excluded because they had adverse events. And I feel like that's, that defeats, like I'm just, so can you speak to this? Cause you know, just cause oh, the study was done. Like a lot of people, again, you know, they, they're so busy being, I feel my opinion, I feel like a lot of people are being kept so busy hand to mouth, month to month, trying to, you know, survive, pay their bills that they don't have the time to dive deep into this stuff. And then we've got journals. There was, um, 
the grievance report. I think it was three researchers dedicated two years to submitting junk papers to different scientific journals, to try to prove that if it was wrapped in this particular agenda, it would get through. And they got something like seven studies through. One of them, they repurposed Mein Kampf from Hitler. And they just replaced it with like terms from feminism. They just placed Nazism with feminism and, and that, and it was accepted into this paper. So can you speak to that? Like, how do we know if a study is good? How do you, that's, I think a big problem because, and I'm on a soapbox here, but at least for me, I almost feel like after all this, we almost have to go back and rebuild from the beginning and re-review the library of studies to be published. Like, how do we know we can trust a lot of the stuff that's been done? Like we, now that we've, it's been exposed the corruption that we've had to deal with, the, the suppression of people. How do we know this hasn't happened before? That biased studies get pushed through journals. And this becomes curricula. This becomes curriculum. People get tenure at universities for this. In some ways, we need the institutions that we trust, but it's very clear that someone peed in the punch bowl. Somebody put a turd in the fruit juice. So can you speak to that a little bit? So I think for the public, it's very hard to know what what studies are good or not. And that's why we need debate between the scientists, because some studies are very good, and there are also some studies that are really lousy. And uh, in a discussion with scientists, that's the only way to determine what's, what who can read these papers and say, no, this is a flaw, or this is a very good study. And so, sometimes you can have a good study, but it only answers a very specific question and it doesn't answer other questions. You have to also be careful, not only if it's a good or bad study, but also exactly what's the question that this study, particular study is answering. I can read scientific papers, so I can judge them if they're good or not. Right. And I have colleagues that I trust, people like Jay Bhattacharya, Sunita Gupta, Vinay Prasad, Martin and so on. And so I, if they say that a study is good or bad, then I have confidence in that because I know that they are right on the studies that I have also read. But I used to trust much more broadly with journal, like prestigious journals or scientists who are well known, but I don't have that trust anymore yeah. that I used to. So it sounds like you're And of course, it's even worse for the public. Right. So it sounds like we're in accord on this, that freedom of speech is mission critical important that we don't need fact checkers per se to tell us what's true or false a lot of these a lot of people don't realize this so i've been on doing online marketing since 2010 if not earlier than that actually i've been doing online marketing since i was 17 when i hitchhiked across canada and i email i scraped all the emails off the chamber of commerce for the town i was going and i emailed them a three-step email campaign with my resume i'm 17 years old Hey, I'm coming your way trying to get interviews for a job when I arrive. But there's actually a whole industry called reputation management. There was a book written called The Google Bomb, and it talked about how disgruntled customers could basically destroy a company through bad reviews online. This is the early days of the internet. There's something called the Oprah effect, where there was a team that would have to audit a business before they could be mentioned or featured on Oprah. Because the general public doesn't care if you're short-staffed or if you're only used to serving 100 people a day. And then Oprah comes on and says, oh, I'm just eating this croissant from my favorite bakery around the corner. And then 15,000 people storm down there and you get all these negative reviews because my order was late. And I only got three croissants, not six. And all this sort of, and so it would kill businesses. So it sounds like that freedom of speech is critically important, that we don't need these people to tell us, like even Google searches now, I find that when I do a Google search, it gives me a pre-digested opinion versus just the facts, that there were no fact-checking websites before then. And that reputation management is an actual industry where people develop networks. So if you just pay me some money, I can get you featured in Bloomberg, or I can get you featured here. I can, this whole, this is my area of expertise. This is the whole thing where you, it's called a shared authority, where you get featured in something so you become more credible. Now, the other question about this is, so obviously we need freedom of speech so we, people can re-review, re-debate this, right? Rebuild. But there's also the funding aspect. My daughter, and I, I, I can you maybe, again, I don't know if you're just going to agree with me, but just to help explain to people listening that maybe don't have a science background. My daughter had an accident in 2021. She got her hand caught in an escalator. She bent over to tie her shoe in the hand side and it tore the flesh off the back of her hand. And she oh, had no. stitches done. It was very traumatic for me. I still, I have PTSD around escalators now. 
don't leave kids. She wasn't unattended. It just was so fast. But my point in all this is that after she got her stitches and now we're in the healing phase, when we would go see the doctor, he'd always recommend different ointments. And I'm a fan of polysporin and that sort of thing. But I was using aloe vera, fresh, uh, the best thing I found as a parent was fresh aloe vera from, you just get the giant leaf, you'd cut it, you'd cut the ends off. You put almost like a hamburger slice of this gel on there and wrap it up overnight. And in the morning, it would have, all the liquid, it would have evaporated or been absorbed. And it was almost like there was a new layer of skin. And I felt every time we did that, it was helping rebuild her hand. Of course, she's young and heals fast. But their needs felt like there was a, a highly noticeable difference between when we use the aloe vera versus not. And I bring this up because when I brought it up with the doctor, he blinked and just stared at me like I was some sort of quack going with aloe vera. And he just wanted me to get this ointment from the pharmacy thing downstairs. And so this comes back to the funding sources, studies that if a molecule or if an herb has no profit behind it, there's no funding for studies. So again, it comes back, how do we answer that question in terms of, okay, we need freedom of speech, we need more debate about stuff, but how do we even know we're looking at the whole available data set? When we you have a very good point because it's expensive to run a good randomized controlled trials. Right. Where you randomize some people with a wound to one treatment and some to another treatment to see which is best. Now for drugs, the pharmaceutical companies uh, can afford to do those because they will then make a profit if it turns out that the drug is working fine. Right. But uh, for things that there are not no patent on, like the leads you were using, there is no, there's nobody has the financial incentive to actually pay for that uh, randomized controlled trials. So in the U.S., the NIH, the National Institute of Health, they do run some studies like that where there is something that is not is very important but there's not uh, commercial money in, in, into it because people can't make profit of it right. and in other countries there are others who do those randomized uh, studies uh, but it is an issue yeah. uh, that uh, yeah it, it becomes sort of an unbalanced uh, towards uh, the pharmaceutical uh, products that people can make profits of yeah, you talk about that. I think it might have been the, there was a guy, Kramer. I don't know if he was at the NIH or if he was at the Sports Science Institute. He was in the health science anywhere. I remember I'm a fan of CrossFit and CrossFit had something like 10 years of legal battles because they started actually helping make people healthy. And they got, you know, all these different alphabet agencies tried to take them out. And apparently they just cleaned house. There's some, there's, it's worth looking in there. And I think this guy Kramer or something like that, you talk about NIH having funding. He published something like, or the agency published something like 50,000 papers. I just remember it was 50,000 papers or reviews or studies under their funding. And there was not a single discovery that advanced or improved human, like advanced our lifespan, improved our quality of life, all this stuff over a massive year. So this is, and let's step into vaccine safety now. Who's testing? Because the original vaccine, from my understanding, and again, I'm, I could be wrong. I'm just a monkey with a smartphone. But- the original vaccine was for smallpox and they would just crush up the scab and blow it in your nose and then treat you early treatment right away, knowing that we just gave you smallpox. So now we're going to help you fight it to beat it. A lot of these vaccine trials that we hear of, there's no, as far as I know, I haven't heard, and, and you would be way more, have there been, maybe I should make it a question, have there been studies of vaccine for measles versus these treatments? For example, uh, the polio vaccine, there was a huge randomized trials to evaluate the polio vaccine mm -hmm. back in the days, where some children got the polio vaccine and other people got the placebo. And we do have a situation where when it, for a new drug or vaccine to come on the market, there has to be some kind of a randomized controlled trial. So that's a good thing. Now, for the COVID vaccine trials, they were very badly designed. Right. Uh, but that uh, there was good, so like the Pfizer and the Moderna, I think, had over 90% efficacy against symptomatic infection. But uh, I don't want to seem heartless here, but I don't really care if you have a symptomatic COVID infection that you have to stay in bed for a few days. What yeah. I care about is you not dying. Yeah, did you die? I care about not being <laughs> yeah. hospitalized. But those trials did not evaluate hospitalization or 
Yes, and the reason was that they were underpowered to do so. And that's because they recruited, uh, the majority of people recruited were either young or middle-aged adults. And they will survive COVID whether they have the vaccine or not. So it's not very informative. Right. It's a study so that if, if they wanted to, If they wanted to show that it prevents death, they would either have had to done a much larger study, which would have been very difficult logistically. But what they should have done is they should have enrolled more older people and less young people to see if these vaccines prevented deaths in uh, in the population. Right. So I think they were very badly designed. They wanted these randomized trials. They wanted to get rich off participation awards versus actually producing results. Hey, we participated. We did a study, so we should be able to sell this product. Versus we actually performed and achieved a meaningful outcome, and now our our product has merit, and now let's make some money on it. Another thing they didn't evaluate, they didn't evaluate whether the vaccine reduced transmission, right? which would have been easy to do because you could have taken the people who got the vaccine or the placebo, and then you could have checked whether their spouse, if they got infected, mm-hmm. and compare the spouses of the vaccinated versus the spouses of the, of the placebo and see if there were a difference in getting COVID. And it, so it was very feasible to do that, but they decided not to do that study. And that's a really important thing from the way I understand it. If you have what's termed a leaky vaccine, it's almost, I want to say, useless for the sake that it trains people's immune system to respond a very specific way, almost like you teach it like a one-punch knockout. But if it doesn't stop transmission, all the virus does is, or bacteria, whatever, is it just goes from person to person and it can't get around this one trick pony. And then when it does figure out how to get around it, you've got massive group, you basically force the, you force variants. You're forcing and encouraging and inducing the, the creation of variants because it's not killing the virus. It's just allowing it to get by for a time until it figures out how to get around that. So you're basically creating a dependency on a new vaccine all the time, because then you also kill the natural flexibility of a person's immune system where everybody from, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. That's part of why I want you here. From my understanding, just as a monkey with a smartphone, all of our immune systems respond slightly differently. And that's part of where even herd immunity comes from, because I don't use the same one punch that you use to kill that thing. And But if we all get vaccinated, we do use the same one trick to kill it. And that's part of where it'll force variants. And you've got now, you're basically making a market for future treatments or vaccines because people's, they've lost the natural flexibility of their immune system in this situation. Is that accurate? There was a lot there, so I can't comment on all of them. But if a vaccine reduces transmission, that's, of course, very good. But... You can have a good vaccine, even a vaccine that doesn't reduce transmission can be an important vaccine if it reduces uh, deaths from the people who get it, if it mm. protects the person who gets the vaccine. So it's not that, so it's not that it's, it's, it's good to know, if, uh, important to know if it reduces transmission or not, but it's not that just because it doesn't mean that it's a worthless vaccine. So I think, therefore, the major flaw was that they didn't evaluate the the important outcomes, which is death, mostly, and to some extent, hospitalizations. Can you... I think they did in 2021. I do think that the vaccines did reduce mortality uh, among older people. Whether they also reduce it among younger people is more of a question mark. Can you expedite determining whether a vaccine is safe or not by adding more people to a study? Yeah, the more people you have in the randomized trials, the more sample size you have to look at adverse reactions. But you can typically never rule out all adverse reactions in those randomized trials. So for that, you need to do what we call post-market surveillance, which we look at adverse reactions after the vaccine or the drug has already been approved. For example, we know that the mRNA vaccine increases the risk of myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart, and especially in young men. But that was impossible to know from the clinical, from the randomized trials. And that's not the fault of the of the pharmaceutical companies, because that's just how, how things are. If it's a rare adverse reaction, you can't pick it up in the, uh, in the trials. So that's why you need a very robust uh, system for evaluating adverse reactions after a a, a vaccine or drug is being used. 
I, I'm going to note that I'm definitely a biased individual in this conversation, but you, you mentioned you absolved the pharmaceutical companies of fault on this. I, I question, is it not known that it takes a certain amount of time to determine the adverse, like, from my understanding, it takes a certain amount of time to properly run the safety trials for any vaccine. It doesn't matter which one. It takes a certain amount of time to run that. And that in the case of Pfizer, and this is, please, again, correct me if I'm wrong. In the case of Pfizer, they added more people, but shortened the time frame. Hey, we know it takes whatever, a year, 12 years to really see how things shake out. Because year one, year two, everything's fine. Year 10, everybody's developing neurological diseases. Adding more people doesn't, I can throw lots of seeds in my field, but it doesn't change the fact that I got to wait a certain amount of time to see how many sprout. Is that is there truth? No, to that? that's an accurate point. So they did, we can't blame them for the fact that they ended the trials and they gave, the people who had placebo were giving the vaccine. So that means that we don't have a randomized trials to evaluate the safety of these vaccines beyond a few months. So what happens after six months or after 12 months, we don't know in, from the randomized trials. So I think we can blame the pharmaceuticals for doing that. And I understand that maybe all the people who were on the placebo, maybe they wanted to put them on the vaccine to protect them. But for younger people and middle-aged people, there was no reason to break the, uh, the trial. Right. But even if you do that, uh, you, there's always limits on the randomized trials because you don't right. want to have it at so many people that you can find every possible rare adverse reaction. So we always need to do post-market surveillance. For example, one, one situation that I worked very well in about, about 15 years ago was when there was a new vaccine for measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella combined for all four instead of having two separate, one for MMR and one for varicella, which is chickenpox. They came up with this new vaccine, and after it passed the trials, but after 25,000 doses, our system that I have developed with, with the CDC and the vaccines that are data link picked up that something might be wrong, and it was. There were more febrile seizures from this new vaccine compared to the old ones. Uh, among uh, uh, children who were like uh, 12 to 18 months uh, old. So that led to a change then in the recommendation. So we can never know for sure. So when a drug or vaccine is approved, we can never know for sure that it is perfectly safe. That's impossible. Right. We have to keep right. an open mind and we have to study it thoroughly. So if you want to buy a new car, for example, I would recommend that you buy the latest model, but if it's taking a drug, it's sometimes better to take the older drugs if there is an older one that has served the same purpose as a new one. You talked about the safety detection systems that you have developed. How does these, in simple terms for the layperson, how does this work and how do we, how do, how does it work? How is the data collected? Like VARES is one that people might become familiar with. That's supposed to catch them. But there's apparently during, COVID and that they they weren't really making it easy and they weren't really trying to monitor that from my understanding. So the VAERS is the most famous and it's the most open because people can access some, uh, some of the data is public, but it's not good data. This is basically uh, anybody can send in a report if they think that the vaccine might cause something. Right. Which means that you get underreporting because some people don't send it in. Right. But you also get over-reporting because things will happen by chance. And you don't know what the denominator is. The best system is the vaccine data link, which is the CDC system, where we use electronic health records. So we know exactly who in this health plan got the vaccine and on what day they got it. Mm. And then we can check how many of them came back to the doctors because they have myocarditis. Mm. Or how many came back because they had something else mm. and you can test you can test every possible adverse potential adverse reaction whether you, whether you think it's plausible or not but you can test them all to see if there's something that's surprising that you didn't expect because there's always certain things that you always look for in a as adverse reactions to vaccine but then the other things that you don't really have or you're at the expected ra radar 
And so what's the, is there high degree of security integrity in that data? Is it, cause we know that the FDA is a bit of a revolving door at the highest echelons. They, they do their tenure and then they finish and then they seem to go work for these big pharma companies. Again, you talked about the cost of these studies being so expensive. So all these trials, sorry, I'm lumping lots of questions together again, but you're going to have to just forgive me for it. Every vaccine that goes to trial, every drug that goes to trial is going to trial, my understanding, because they, it, it seems to produce a positive effect. So the real deal breaker is whether the cure is better than the disease over a long enough period of time. If I could be so frank, no one's going to test something they think won't work. The real kind of benchmark here is the cure better than the disease over a long enough reasonable frame of time. And then, like you mentioned, we need these hopefully impartial, non-biased third parties to help validate that because the, the studies are financed with intent. And then we've got these data collection systems that are, where are these hosted? Are these hosted with these clearly corrupted third parties? Again, I hope you get to the, the, the core of what I'm trying to ask here. So uh, there's two aspects here. The, the randomized trials that are used to test efficacy, if the drug or vaccine works, they are they are usually run by the pharmaceutical companies, either on their own or they use some company who does it, or they outsource this to universities, uh, often multiple ones, to because they have to recruit the right patients and so on. But those are usually controlled by the pharmaceutical company, and then they are scrutinized by FDA and by sometimes an advisory committee that FDA puts together of scientists who are independent from that uh, pharmaceutical company. Um, and then FDA decides whether to approve it or not. Uh, for adverse reactions, as part of a part of uh, the randomized trials, they have to collect information about adverse reactions, but that's not possible for detecting rare, adverse, rare but serious adverse reactions. So for that, those studies are typically not done by pharmaceutical companies. So for example, the vaccine study data link is paid for by CDC and is done by uh, health plans like Kaiser in California, Northern and Southern California, and other similar health plans by scientists who are not working for the pharmaceutical companies. Some of them are completely independent. Some of them might have worked on some other study for a pharmaceutical company, but they don't work actually for the pharmaceutical companies. They work for these health plans. And that data is usually reliable because it's electronic health records. So it's actually the data that the, the doctor, the physicians mm. uh, put in the computer when you go to the physicians. And they can be miscoding and those kind of things, but it's usually sort of more random miscoding, which is better than systematic uh, biases. And you could probably narrow it down geographically too to try to help eliminate and compare geographies to help eliminate any of that, those coding, do, do different samples. So it sounds like that one's, we, we have a relatively strong degree of confidence in that data. Where is it warehoused? Is it backed up any way, shape or form? It's warehoused at the health plans. So Kaiser Northern California has their data and Southern California has their data. And then they extract it and the summary statistics is, is sent to CDC, but not the whole data set. Just a couple of questions left. I, I do want to be respectful of your time. Has there ever been a safe mRNA vaccine in the history of all your knowledge of vaccines? prior to COVID's mRNA vaccines? There has, I don't think there's been any mRNA vaccines before COVID. None at, le at least none that were widely used. And since having gone through what you've experienced with this, I, I would ask, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, which a lot of people, they're wondering, what does this mean for me? Especially you look at parents, like a friend of mine just had a child and there's something like 80 something vaccines on the childhood schedule right now. Which do you think are the most important vaccines that you have the strongest confidence in? And I'll start with that perhaps. So I think the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine is important. And uh, I think it's a very good vaccine. It, uh, those three diseases can all have 
bad consequences. I don't think for that children need the COVID vaccines. So I think that's not necessary. And that one, I, I contradict the CDC. Yeah. But I mean, one thing I was censored for by Twitter uh, at the behest of the government was when I said that COVID vaccines are important for older people because they're high risk. Right. But children yeah. don't need them, nor people who have had COVID because they have infection-acquired immunity or natural immunity that's better than the immunity you get from the vaccine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I stand yeah. by that uh, assert, uh, assertion still. And I, I agree. I have a friend, he left the military in the UK after 17 years. He was uh, a medical technician, I think. I don't know. I don't know the proper title, but he was part of the military response to the Ebola breakout uh, in the Congo. And he was like, that was a real pandemic. And this, they had that, they had a matrix for your risk level, risk reward, so to speak, whether you got this new experimental vaccine or not during the Ebola outbreak. And he just knew that this just wasn't, this just wasn't how it's supposed to be. And after 17 years, despite being so close to a nice cushy government retirement, he just, he he left. He's, this is not what I signed up for. But you say that people can still have, because con- there's a lot of hesitancy now, right? Like myself, I'm like, the man who raised me worked in applied physics and geology, hard sciences. I feel I grew up, despite having been adopted in an orphan and, and, and having a PhD meaning a a public high school diploma to rely on to lead me through this world and self-educate myself. I still feel that I approach things that way. But even myself now at this point, that really is a questioning of what do we believe? Where do we start? We've already talked about how biased the entire library of research is because there has to be a financial backing for it. It's primarily funded by the companies with something to sell. The agencies who are supposed to try to be the counterbalance have clearly been corrupted. Um, so we can't trust a lot of what they're saying. I almost feel like I said that we're starting from the beginning again. You say the measles, mumps, rubella vaccines, we can trust those ones you have the strongest confidence in. So what would your advice be to any new parents right now who are also wondering how do we move forward? Do you just trust everything blindly still, learning what we've learned after the last three years? No, I think that uh, the uh, one of the tragic things is that because the government has come out with information that was not accurate, both about vaccines, but not just about vaccines, about lockdowns and other things. They don't deserve our trust anymore. So then who should we trust? I trust my own reading of the literature, but I can't read everything myself. Of course. Even I also trust some of my colleagues who I know are very honest colleagues, but even they can't read everything. So at this point, we are lacking a reliable, uh, a reliable institu- institution that we can trust about these things. And I think that's one thing that we do need, mm-hmm. something that's very important for the future. Right. Because we need to have some somebody to trust. And, and it's not that they always have to be right, because they should also say, of I don't know, because sometimes we don't know. And then we have to be honest about saying this vaccine is really good, this drug we shouldn't take, and this other thing we don't really know. Maybe it might be good or maybe not. I guess it it just expounds on the necessity for things like the Academy for Science and Freedom, and actually even for perhaps more of an emphasis on creating more young scientists, going back to the core principles where science is not. Again, Karl Popper, he said there is no method that guarantees scientific breakthroughs. If that were true, there'd be more frequent. What we have is a system of trying to prevent ourselves from fooling ourselves by really eliminating errors. David Deutsch talked about this in his book, The Beginning of Infinity, where he talked about that good science is a specific explanation with details that are hard to vary without changing the outcome of the result. So we talk about the old legends about why we have the Greek myths about why we have seasons. And it was some goddess was kidnapped and taken to the underworld. So we have winter because the gods are mourning her disappearance, but her mom negotiated. She gets released once a year. And so that's why we have spring. We're celebrating a return. But if you were to go to the equator, that story doesn't hold true. And so you can vary the details and it changes the outcome. Whereas um, Galileo, who thought that was one of the first to say that the sun is the center of the universe, they actually were able to prove it with telescopes observing the phases of Pluto 
And that the only way to describe the phases of Pluto, like we have phase of the moon, full moon, half moon, crescent moon, was based off of math, right? And geometry and other, I'm not a mathematician, but these are such specific explanations that are so hard to vary. The only answer has to be that the sun is at the center of everything and that these things are orbiting in this manner with this weight and this sort of effect. So I guess the, the answer, again, we're not going to solve the world's problems on this call, but it, it sounds like, one, we have to really review who we trust. We have to always go back to primary sources, first principles, and that we have to maybe really look at refreshing how we educate people. A lot of it right now, I think it's the Persian or Peruvian, Persian, the Persian, our education system is based off of, I think it was the per, per, Persian, their military training system. There, there's a Peruvian king. Persian king who was afraid he was going to lose his empire and he had to figure out a way to educate soldiers for their roles very quickly and that became the modern education system as we know it which then became training workers for factories because we aligned in factory rows it's a factory bell that announces your break you get a quality control card from your teacher it sounds like it's a we're on the precipice perhaps of a new golden era where we take all the things that got us this far and we eliminate all the errors of them and hopefully that can take us to a better, brighter future, perhaps. I don't know. There wasn't a question in there <laughs> for you to answer. But I think we need we need scientists who we can trust, who are not uh, subject to, who are independent of pharmaceutical companies, for example. Mm, we need, and I've never taken any any money from any pharmaceutical companies because I was working on vaccine and drug safety. So I figured that gave me sort of a conflict of interest to do it. But I think yeah, I think I'm in the minority here among scientists. And I think we need scientists who do not, who are independent and who can scrutinize the evidence and then in a way that, that we can trust it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I also want to play a bit of devil's advocate for the listeners here and go, don't, don't rely on Martin. We're grateful to have people like Martin, but... You can't abdicate responsibility. I think the way forward is more personal responsibility. You, the listener, if any of this has been confusing, if any of this seems out of reach, you have the access to the library of humanity's knowledge in the palm of your hand in your pocket. Like you need to empower yourself and educate yourself and take personal responsibility and not go, oh, someone else like Martin, you're right. We need someone else to go and do this. No, you need to pull your, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and we all need to be doing what I'm doing. You know, essentially, I don't want, I, well, I should be more humble than that, but trying to connect with these people, one, to let them know they're doing a great job, to thank them, to try to educate ourselves and spread this education. But again, I think it really comes back to more of this personal accountability that we talked a lot, like you said, not everybody has the time to read all the studies and do that. But we can all brush up our skills so we're a little less easy to manipulate. I agree with that 100%. And I think the public, one thing that's, one thing that's positive from this pandemic is that there are a lot of people who have taken the time to learn about infections, about epidemiology, and who are quite smart about it. Yeah. Uh, even though they don't have uh, the formal education. Right, and there were people who who scrutinized what CDC did, yeah. and pointed it out, and forced CDC to retract and correct. And these were people who had no background. Yeah. One woman was named is Kelly, for example, who did some excellent work on that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 100%. And if somebody has diabetes or they have cancer or they have some heart problems, yes, uh, go and read the. Uh, go and read the scientific literature. Yeah, yeah. You can, there's nothing stopping you from making some Google searches, learning how, reading up on how to read a study, finding some of the open source tools that can make the library of the world scientific literature available to you. I think that's a really important one. Martin, I want to be. If you buy a car or a dishwasher, then you usually try to read up which one you should buy. Right. So I think yeah, health is even more important than your dishwashers. Yeah, health is wealth. Health is wealth. Martin, you've been so generous with your time and your answers. I really appreciate knowing you have your own following, your own family, your own your own projects for coming and sharing with my audience and I. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? I think you've asked some great 
uh, questions and you have made some nice, very nice comments. This was a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you. So thank you very much. Thank you. If people want to learn more, if they want to follow you, if they want to reach out, if they want to, where are the best places for them to, to either get in touch or to stay up to date? I'm on Twitter under the handle Martin Kuldorf, but then also they can do a Google search for Academy for Science and Freedom. So go find him on Twitter, also known as X M A R T I N, last name Kuldorf, K U L D O R F F. That's Martin M A R T I N Kuldorf, K U L D O R F on Twitter. Um, also, you can Google search Academy of Science, Scientific Freedom, no, Academy for Science and Freedom. Sorry, Academy for Science and Freedom. Martin, thank you again so much for coming and sharing with us. I'm really grateful for people like you that really help stand up and fight for the rights. People you don't even know, just out of principle. It's very stoic. It's very noble. And I just thank you so much. And I hope that, you know, that I hope that the path that you've the trail that you've blazed is valued and appreciated by the people who will follow behind because it really like a lot of people don't realize a lot of people that just went along don't realize how like how much people like you i'm not i didn't stand up as much like i'm not i'm a nobody essentially on the scene and i for my decisions felt so outcasted and I just, I don't know if people understand the pressure that comes with that. And so I just think it's incredibly commendable to have such incorruptible values and such a deep sense of in integrity to, to your craft. So this is all flowery, nice platitudes, but, but it's just it, actions speak louder than words. And I just am very grateful you came on here. So at least I can help acknowledge what you did because it deserves to be acknowledged and respected. So thank you so much. Thank you, Daryl, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.